Hey guys, welcome to episode 171 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you're all doing well and that you're in the mood for some true crime. We wanted to take the time to thank you at the top of the show. And at the end, we're going to thank all of our new supporters on Patreon. If you want ad-free episodes and two full-length bonus episodes a month, you can join us on the Patreon app or at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Okay, without any further ado, John, do you want to hear something crazy? Of course I do. Detective Scott Day had been on the Edmond Police Force for just about 20 years. Close to his retirement, he could reflect back on his career and be proud of the work he had done all except for that one case from 18 years prior. He had been a rookie officer then, and the first to respond to the scene of a murder and a violent sexual assault. The case had gone unsolved and haunted the community. It was something that he thought about often. The house, the details. He could see the only survivor standing in the doorway of the house, battered and covered in blood, sobbing as he ran to her. That's why it was odd that there he was in 2004. He stood again in front of a brick house with a large bush in one of the windows on a suburban street. It was like deja vu. He got his bearings and looked around. He was only steps away from the house that he responded to back in 1986. Had he done it again? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On the night of August 16, 1986, a 25-year-old woman listened intently from the closet of her boyfriend's home in Edmond, Oklahoma. She thought she heard him leave. It was her opportunity. She struggled out of the ropes that her assailant had tied her in and ripped the pillowcase from her head. She had to get to her boyfriend. She had to get to the phone. She needed an ambulance and the police. Later in recovery, she would be told that people that survived what she did either can't remember what happened to them or they can't forget. She was one of the ones that could never forget. For the sake of the survivor of this story, we're going to exclude her name, as it has been kept out of most publications regarding this case. After our survivor left the bedroom, in which she had been tortured for the past few hours, she made her way down the hallway, to the dining room and kitchen area of her boyfriend's home, She saw him lying on the floor by the dining room table. She ran to him and held him, touched him. She knew she had to get the police there right away. She went to the phone and called 911. She needed the police and an ambulance to 1228 Harding Ave right away. Minutes later, flashing lights flooded the ranch home. Officer Scott Day was the first officer on scene. He had been the closest when the call came in. The report was of an intruder who had left, but had badly hurt those who were inside. As Day approached the home, our victim appeared in the doorway. 
She'd been brutalized. She was covered in blood of her own and of her boyfriend. Her hand was covering her mouth as she choked back sobs. As he got closer, she said to him, He's dead. I know he's dead. Is he dead? The officer cleared the home to ensure that the assailant had indeed left the scene. As he was doing so, he encountered the body of 27-year-old Gary Larson, the homeowner. He was found on the ground near a wall in the dining room. It would later be determined by a medical examiner that he had been stabbed 24 times in the chest and stomach. Detectives and crime scene units were called to the scene by day immediately. He explained that one victim was deceased, and the other at the scene claimed that her assailant had sexually assaulted her for three hours at knife point before leaving the home. Wow. Okay. That's intense. So first off, I, I think it's I think it's the most scariest thing because we've all seen movies, right? I mean, that gives you just even just a percentage of what it must feel like to be this person, our victim here, and be in the closet while all this is taking place. That's really scary. But I think what's crazy here is we already have a few things to to think about here. Whoever did this must really relish in torturing people, right? Because we have to look at the weapon used. So we talk about knives all the time, right? So, I mean, if you wanted to make it quick, you would use an, another form, like maybe a gun or something to make it quick. Right. But to use a knife like that, it's up close and personal, and it takes a little longer. So he's relishing in inflicting pain. And then also to commit sexual assault now here, too. For three hours. That means that, I mean, he really likes the power of it all. So this mm-hmm. is like, I guess we're starting to build a little a little bubble here of like everything that this person and how sick he is, you know? Right. And who he could be because of what he did yeah. to this couple. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It is insane. So sad. This was something the likes of the Edmond Police Department was not accustomed to investigating. And because it involved the major crimes of murder and forcible rape, the department requested the assistance of the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation to work in conjunction with local detectives. All investigators quickly responded to the scene, and the surviving victim was taken to the hospital to be treated for her injuries. When the investigators first walked into the Brick Ranch corner lot home on the wide suburban street, they found Gary Larson laying flat on his back in the corner of the dining room where the island met the wall. He was wearing only his underwear, which made sense because it was a really hot night and the air conditioning in the home wasn't on. So they assumed that, you know, he had been sleeping in little clothing and this indicated to them that, you know, this was a surprise attack to the couple in the middle of the night. His left arm was extended outward and a large amount of blood had pooled beneath him and on his chest. He had two massive wounds on his chest and other small wounds surrounding the area. He had clearly been stabbed to death, but the detectives knew not to touch Gary or go near him until the medical examiner got there as to not disturb the crime scene. The room told the story of what happened. On the wall above Gary, there was a large crack where his body must have been slammed up against the wall by his murderer. The sheetrock oddly broke into a peace sign, which looked eerie 
amongst the chaos that surrounded it. A dead body beneath, blood all around it. Around the large cracks in the wall, there was blood stains and splashes from spatter of blood while the attack was happening. Since the murder took place hours before, the larger slashes of blood had begun to drip down the wall. The detectives from the OSBI guessed that maybe their victim had been walking through the house in the dark when he was attacked. They were correct in their assumption. Later, the medical examiner would confirm that Gary must have been thrown against the wall, and the first stab wound that he suffered went completely through his body, and then the second stab wound completely incapacitated him. That meant that the murderer went on to stab him another 22 times. Why? He was dead. Was this rage? Did Gary know his killer? It, it brought a lot of questions into the crime scene. I mean, I think that's pretty insane that the first stab wound went completely through, which either shows one or two things or both. Uh, the The size of the weapon must have been pretty extreme. Like a, the knife had to be pretty large for that to do that. Right, to get through a body and, and then also, hit the wall. Yeah, and then also, uh, you know, that person would have to have some physical attributes that would make him a lot stronger than the victim to maybe push that through like that. Or it could be adrenaline. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you're in the moment, you're, you know, you're doing these things. You know, it's it's pretty aggressive. And like right. you said, could this be somebody that maybe knows him? It's possible. But I mean, so far, he's shown that he, whoever did this wants, you know, they he wants to dominate and control the entire situation and this whole entire family in this house. Right. I think, too, um, and one thing that the detectives talked about was that they could tell, obviously. They knew that this crime happened in the middle of the night. So what was being revealed in the light of day was just so bizarre in seeing, like, the harsh realities of, like, what happened to Gary and his girlfriend that that night. And the house just looked so eerie. And I, I can imagine that's that's probably every crime scene, how scary it must be to have like the juxtaposition of like this sunny day and the light shining in, just revealing what happened in the dark. Well, you think I mean, I mean, I don't you don't need to be a rocket scientist, but, you know, think about it. Right. You know, it's it's nighttime. So the night hides a lot of these little uh, little details that you might not be so privy to at the start of an investigation. And as soon as like you said, as soon as the sun comes up, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. Wow. And I think, too, like he had a ranch house, kind of an open floor plan for the time, right? The 80s are not known for their open floor plans. But they were like, how did he maybe not see this guy coming? But in the pitch black, when you're not accustomed to the darkness and someone else might have been already. Yeah. He very easily was able to get the upper hand on Gary, who was a big guy and was physically fit and definitely could have defended himself and his girlfriend. But the element of surprise in the dark can really get one over on anyone. Well, anyone that's willing to commit murder and, and sexual assault, you know, this bad, right? I mean, you got to think <laughs> this person, maybe even there's a possibility he could have scoped the house out, could have been wait, uh, you know, lying in wait for a while, tried to maybe get the advantage at night. Right. And, the, and the and the element of surprise, because no one's going to go in there, um, you know, to match someone even, you know, even odds. Somebody that's going to do this wants to have a little up on the person that they're going to go after. Yes, definitely. And at the crime scene, there's also a very bizarre clue 
something that investigators, both young and old, had never seen before. What was it? A footprint. Okay. But what was unique about this footprint was that it was a bare footprint. What? The killer had been barefoot. Really? Mm-hmm. At the scene, there with the OSBI, was a criminalist who suggested that they do a luminol test to see if there was any more blood or any more footprints so they could kind of see where their killer went. Because, two, what they're trying to figure out is that were was there more than one person there that night or is one person responsible for the murder and the sexual assault? I see. So what they do, because it's it's very bright out, to do the luminol test is that they cover the windows with a black visqueen material and they do the test. They wanted to focus the luminol test on the carpet to see if they could get more footprints. And they saw it right away. Another bare footprint. This time it was a right foot and it hit the floor at an angle as if it was turning down the hallway, which would lead them in the direction of the back bedrooms where their survivor said she was attacked. So now they knew that the man that had incapacitated and murdered Gary then went further into the house to sexually assault his girlfriend. And the detectives are going to say that this is uh, very creepy because when they covered the windows, it made the house completely dark again. So the only light that was in the house was the luminol. So like this illumination of blood and... They said it was almost like a science science fiction movie. I mean, we're talking about 1986 here. Yeah. Um, they were like, it was so creepy because we were following the footsteps of our killer. Yeah. It's almost like it's frozen in time in yes. that moment. And you could see it. Yeah. Almost like you're there watching it take place almost. Yes. Yeah. So weird. They were like, we were back in a time machine. Yeah. During the scene of the crime. That's very bizarre. So before we get into any other clues from the crime scene and we get into our second crime scene, which is the bedroom, we're going to take a break to talk about our sponsor of today's show. Okay, let's get back to our episode. So now that led investigators to the second crime scene, the main bedroom. In the bedroom, things had been knocked all over the place. It was clear that a struggle had occurred. The sheets were twisted and ripped off the bed in areas, and blood-stained different parts of them. Most of the blood that was in the room would be linked back to Gary. The murderer and rapist had Gary's blood all over him from stabbing him, so that was why his blood got all over the bedroom, the secondary crime scene. But every inch of the room was a mess. The survivor had fought hard for her life. The bloody footprints were photographed, processed, and measured at the scene. The prints were about a size nine and a half shoe, and that didn't match the size of Gary or the survivor's foot, so they knew they had to belong to the killer. The crown jewel print that they got came from the bathroom. At some point, the murderer must have stepped in the bathroom, and because they did, they left a footprint on the tile, which is perfect because a bare footprint is unique. Just like a fingerprint. Yeah, I was thinking that too. You know, I, oddly, I, I was thinking when you said the barefoot, right? I thought, could it be possible that this person is doing it because he thinks that like the transfer of um, 
Because obviously, I mean, if he's fight, you know, if he's kill, trying to kill somebody, and you know, he has blood all over himself, maybe he thought wearing no shoes would be less, uh, like it, he wouldn't be caught as easily if he was just wearing a boot or, a, or you know, like or a shoe. I think he might have thought that it was quieter. Oh, that's a good point. But it is interesting because I think that a tile you would you would get the transfer of a footprint better than on a rug or another surface. Which was great because they did. They yeah. got the actual imprint of it. Like in a carpet, you could just see, okay, this guy was barefoot. That's very bizarre. They've never seen that at a crime scene before. But when he stepped into the bathroom, he left his actual imprint, which they could test against a, a p- potential suspect. Yeah. So they removed the whole tile from the bathroom. The investigators also knew the path that he took to get into the back bedroom. Because there was two ways that he could have gone, according to the floor plan of the house. Next, the investigators took their search of the crime scene outside. The house sat on a large corner lot. The houses were decently spaced apart, but close. What was odd about the house was that the investigators could see why the house had been a target. If you were going with the theory that this had been someone random, it was a ranch house with large windows that went from almost the top of the ceiling to about a foot from the floor. If someone had been looking in those houses, trying to scope out victims, they certainly would have gotten a good look through those windows. On the other hand, the house was not a good target. It was very visible to the houses of neighbors, and it was right in front of a really large, bright street lamp that illuminated most of the house. In searching the perimeter of the house, The detectives found the solution to their perpetrator's dilemma with the illumination and proximity to the neighbors thing. On the west side of the house, there was a small brick wall that extends about five bricks in length and goes up about a third of the house. And behind that wall was a very large bush. This was most certainly where the killer would have been hiding because if he was on the west side of the house, Behind the wall and behind a bush, no one from the street could have seen him. And they knew that he was there because it was in in that window, the window next to the main bedroom, because the bush was right in front of the main bedroom window. The window next to it, which had also been left open, had a cut in it. So he got through the screen. But see, that's all well and good, but I feel like... That this person doing that though, I feel must know the neighborhood. I don't think it's someone like like super random. Like I mean, maybe like from another town or city or something. Because this person, we need to know where to get around. And even though it's at night, and even though like you know there's a wall and a bush, and that's all great to hide. But he would need to, he or she would need to know where to go. Definitely a he. Okay, so he would need to know where he's where how to get to that wall without being seen. And that's exactly what detectives thought too. They were like, this guy has to be familiar with the neighborhood. He first has to know that the neighborhood's going to be dead at the time that he did this. And he also needs to know that he could get to that secret and hidden location without being detected. And he had to know that it existed too. Right. So you're right. I think that gave away the fact that he knew the neighborhood and he had a certain level of comfortability within it. The location of this area was just outside the main bedroom, meaning that they might have a peeping Tom on their hands. 
And this is like the neighborhood of ranch homes. So like it would have been the place for a peeping Tom, which what that person is doing is so invasive and nefarious that I wish there was a better name for it than peeping Tom because it sounds like almost silly. Or like I just want to take a look at people, you know, like it's like, way it's, worse. The name implies innocent. When it's not. When it's something really bad. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. So what they had or who they had on their hands was someone who watched this couple in their bedroom and then chose to act. It was sick, but they had seen cases where peeping toms escalated to attacks or murder. And we've seen it, too, on this podcast. The escalation is just there when looking is not enough for them. Below the window, detectives felt that they had found the butt imprint of someone that had been sitting below the window. This would have also further concealed them from passerbys, and this might have been where someone was sitting so they could remove their shoes when they got into the house. Ah, okay. When this man broke into the house, he removed Gary as an obstacle. They believed his true intention had been the sexual assault of their survivor, especially because he had tortured her for three hours. After the scene had been processed, the officers that had been asked to canvass the neighborhood and ask anyone if they'd seen anything reported back. No one had seen or heard anything. The attack happened in the middle of the night, into the early morning hours. No one could help them. But luckily, the detectives had the survivor to speak to about the events of that night. Maybe there would be a detail that she could remember that would help them catch this guy. I mean, yeah, that's a good point, right? I mean, this woman, even though she went through hell that night, she's going to have some kind of information to tell police. I, I think it's even possible that could she have passed this person somewhere and maybe he made a pass at her and, uh, you know, he, you know, she rejected it. And this is what he decided to do. Like, you never that know. That happened in our Florida case. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, once again, we don't have a better word, but. A peeping Tom is one thing. Maybe he was doing this for a long time and never decided to act on something so bad that would end up in murder and sexual assault. But maybe right. the uh, the ignition, the, the 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 match that just lit this whole thing up was maybe she rejected him in a, like a passerby kind of thing. You right. never know. It could have been any kind of interaction. And the detectives were kind of thinking that too. Like, had is this a random crime or is this someone that had been fixated on her? And then they still also weren't ignoring the possibility that it could be someone who knew them. At the hospital, the survivor of the horrific event that occurred at 1228 Harding Ave was speaking with detectives and Gary's family members. She was devastated. She allowed the nurses and doctors to perform a rape kit on her, only further traumatizing her to that moment in time. And as she was being asked to relive the events of that night, her concern was only for Gary's family. She loved Gary and his family. The couple was practically engaged. In many articles about these crimes, she's referred to as his fiance, And she just felt horrible for them and the fact that Gary was no longer with them. It showed her character that in her greatest time of need, as she sat bruised, battered, and covered in rug burns, and those were just the visible physical wounds, that doesn't include what was not visible and the mental scars that this would leave on this woman for the rest of her life. But while she was enduring that all, she was trying to help and comfort Gary's family. 
And that was the sentiment shared by Gary's mother in interviews she later gave about how caring she was to them and for them and just letting them know how sad she was about what happened to Gary. As she explained to the family and the detectives what happened that night, a clearer picture is painted for them of the hell that the couple had gone through. She told them that she and Gary had been out that night, and they returned home late. The plan was for her to spend the night at the home. Although it was a warm night, he didn't want to sleep with the AC on. Instead, they opted for opening all the windows. She had changed out of her clothes and got into bed. Because it was hot, he was sleeping in his underwear, and she had been sleeping without clothes on. She said that around 2 a.m., they'd been lying in bed together and talking, and then they decided to turn off the lights and go to bed. After about 20 to 30 minutes, she said she heard some type of clanging noise, like someone was in the house. This also woke Gary. He went to investigate what the sounds were. She laid back in bed, but seconds later she heard Gary scream, which caused her to bolt upright and jump out of bed. She walked to the door and peered down the hallway. She slowly started towards the kitchen, and then she saw an individual coming down the hallway. It wasn't Gary. It was a terrifying scene. He was just wearing underwear and a pair of gloves, and he was covered in blood. So this person took all his clothes off. Yeah. Wow. This is like the scary, one of the scariest things. I'm like picturing this poor woman looking down the hallway and seeing this per- this person just there in his underwear. Yeah. And when he saw her, he began to run towards her, chasing her back into the bedroom. Oh, my God. There was nowhere for her to go. He had her trapped. She said that as he begun to attack her and the struggle ensued, she tried to be as loud as she could because she knew the windows were open. She was hoping that someone would hear. But no one did. The whole neighborhood was asleep. It was two o'clock in the morning. And in the struggle, he knocked her glasses off. For the next three hours, the woman was tortured and repeatedly raped at knife point. Periodically, he would stop his attack and search the home. He would always come back, and the attacks would continue. She described him as a crazy and evil man, and she thought that the only reason that she was alive was because at a certain point during the attack, she decided that she had to stay calm to keep him calm, and that maybe if she talked to him, he would leave her alive. Because at that point, she realized that Gary had to be dead or close to it because if not, he would have come to help her if he was able to. So she knew he was at least hurt enough to not be able to go to her. Her instincts were correct and had saved her life. As the sun began to come up at 5 a.m., he began to tie her up with rope. He put a pillowcase over her head and put her in the closet. She said she listened to him leave. She must have been scared that he would come back because he'd done that before. So she waited until she knew he was gone, before she started to break free from her bindings. The first thing she wanted to do was check on Gary. 
When she found him, she couldn't even process that he'd been killed. She rushed to the phone, desperate to get help for them, and because she was terrified the man would come back and finish what he started. Like she was thinking that he would change his mind and come back and kill her. Right. And then what a decision that you have to make, you know, split second choices, right? It's like, do I just bolt out of here or call, you know, or call the police because we need help? You know what I mean? Like that's hard because you don't know what's going on. He could still be in the house somewhere and not even know. He could be. He could be. And I think it was Gary that kept her in the house because she didn't want to leave him. Right. Exactly. The detectives asked her if there was anything about the attack that stuck out to her. That is the most horrifying story. Like. Like, we've been doing this since 2017, and I just think, okay, I've heard it all. And every time, it's just, you read about these things, and you're like, I could never imagine being in that position and, like, having the wherewithal to to think logically and be like, I need to talk to this guy. I need to keep myself alive. Like, that takes so much, and the fact that she was able to do that and think on her feet at such a traumatizing and terrifying moment is incredible well just you know i feel like it might sound corny when i say this but that is the power of the human spirit right it's like you 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 know you you need you want to survive you need to do whatever it takes to make it through that and i think that even though we have been doing this for a long time i think some cases for whatever reason maybe it's our own personal fears or whatever you you may think it is but some do stick out more than others i think that is everyone's fear that someone's going to come into your house in the middle of the night and, and do this. Well, I think it's also because your home is supposed to be your safe place. And mm-hmm. when that is invaded and taken advantage of, and then unfortunately things happen to people inside, like, I think that's what it is. It's like, you don't want someone coming in, you know, to your place. Where you're supposed to be safe. Yeah. yeah. So detectives asked her if anything stuck out to her. And she said that, yeah, there were some details that she thought were odd or interesting, She said that the man seemed to be sexually inexperienced. Okay. That there were times that he had grown frustrated because he didn't know what to do. Like he like he had her like there were some points that he had her and he tied her up or he was definitely trying to she believed incapacitate her like he kept trying to attack her to knock her unconscious so he could do whatever he wanted while she was unconscious because while she was awake he didn't know what to do that's that was the impression that she got from him like he almost didn't know what to do with her when he had her right so i mean it could be maybe that this person's on the younger side or just this is the first time that they've ever carried out such a a heinous act that's interesting input we'll get to that later yeah she said that throughout the attack he had not been wearing a mask or anything to cover his face however she hadn't been able to see him she was legally blind without her glasses. Oh, man. And then they got knocked off. Yes. Oh, man. So isn't that crazy? You've spent three hours with this person, but you don't know what they look like, which is terrifying to her as a survivor. Because now a man could pass her on the street and she doesn't know if that's him. Right. That is terrifying, actually. What she could decipher about him was the fact that he had blonde or light hair and that he was about 5'9". She worked with a sketch artist, but the details of the man were shaky, and it really was of, of no help. What was not shaky, though, was what he did to her, and it was something that she kept reliving in her mind over and over again. 
In a later interview with the Oklahoman in 1987, she recalled her time after the attack. She said that at first, time passed slowly. It was hard to face each day. The worst part was at night. I didn't want to go to bed to close my eyes for fear he would appear again. She said another difficult part of surviving the attack was doing so without Gary. She revealed that although it was hard to enter that house again, where everything had happened, she felt that she had to. It had sat vacant for quite some time after the attack. I found through, like, house sales records that the house sat vacant from when the attack happened until 1992, and the family that bought the house is still there. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful neighborhood. So she said that when she went into the home, which had been at that point vacant for a year, she did so to place a memento of her relationship with Gary. She loved him. Gary is gone, she said. Nothing can ever bring him back. And I believe he's gone to a better place. I have to go on living. I have to convince myself that I was strong enough to survive. She credited her therapist with helping her tremendously with her recovery. I mean, that's really good, right? I mean, this is the silver lining of this part of this is that at least she was able to, you know, maintain some normalcy through through help. Yeah. You know? And she is a strong person for being able to go through what she went through and come out the other side. So Right, because you're not just dealing with the trauma that happened to you, the physical and mental effects of what happened to you for the rest of your life but also kind of a level of survivor's guilt. Yeah, and also the loss that she suffered of someone that she thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with. Right. She, A part of her died that day because the future that she could have had with Gary died. Right. And lastly, I think that some people, when something traumatic like this happens, it almost supersedes the fact that you could grieve. Yeah. So it puts the grieving on the back burner, and then it's almost like you go, let's just say, for example, a year or two without even really addressing that the aspect of right. it. And then you start to grieve, and then it's like going backwards and then having to deal with it you know, for a while. Yeah, I can't imagine how difficult Like that I don't was. know if that made sense. but No, it does. Yeah. It does, because then it brings up the other feelings again yeah. that you've tried to heal from. So it's it's kind of like a cycle It's it's going through yes. this pain. It's really sad. Well, her sentiment for Gary was shared by all of those who knew him and loved him. Because from what people have to say about him, it seemed that to know him was to love him. Gary had grown up in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and he had a sister that was a lot older than him, 12 years older. So it was like he grew up with two loving mothers. He went on to study accounting at Oklahoma University and easily found a job as a CPA, which he was apparently really good at. His sister and friend both said that he had an amazing smile and that he was basically not your average accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That he was very handsome. He was a talented musician and athlete. And even though he was all of those things, he was like perfection, but he never had a big head about himself. He was the nicest and most down-to-earth man that you could ever meet. And it always seems like the people like that are the victims of these senseless, horrible crimes. It does, right? It's, it's so true. 
The community of Edmond was truly shocked by what happened in their quiet community. Crime was virtually non-existent, let alone a crime so heinous. You That always makes me think of SV. Right, yeah, the, the beginning. Dun, dun. Uh, dun, dun, dun. You have to think of the time period, too. So we're talking about the summer of 1986, which also I have to give a shout out to my Jersey boys. This The day of this crime was actually the day Slippery When Wet was released by Bon Jovi. It's one of the best albums of all time. You would. So it was a wild time to be alive. And at the same time, the newspapers were all talking about Richard Ramirez. That's because almost exactly a year before Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, had been caught. And they were talking about getting the preparations ready for his trial because the trial date had been set, which would be later in 1989. But this crime is very reminiscent of the Night Stalker. Richard Ramirez would hide in the house. I mean, he had a lot of crazy MOs because of all the drugs that he did. Um, And he did crimes of opportunity. But there were a few cases where he would wait in the closet and then come out when his victims were sleeping kill the husband, rape the the wife or girlfriend, and that's what happened here. So as these Richard Ramirez stories are coming out, here's this. And then at the same time, don't forget, the Golden State Killer was still on the loose. The East Area Rapist, Golden State, like however you want to, whatever moniker you want to say that he went by. So whenever crimes like this would occur, that were similar to the M.O. of the East Area Rapist. And because he had not been caught and time had gone since the last crime, everyone would say that, oh, maybe he moved. Right. So that's going to come up in this case. Had the East Area Rapist left California and come to Oklahoma? It's so crazy, though, how people can think that someone could move like a crime like that could only be done by the person that was doing it in California. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because nobody ever wants to admit that there are monsters among us that could be living in the same town as we are. You know, it has to be that one outlier that lived in California that now might be here in Oklahoma. I mean... Yeah, because how could Oklahoma ever breed a person like this? Exactly. Like, hey, look, you know... They're from every state. Right. I mean, I would love if that was the case. That way it can only be, you know, know, someone over there and not somebody that might be in my my neighbor or my backyard. Right. You could choose (laughs) to live somewhere safe, quote unquote. Right. That's what I mean. Right. Well, I mean, this is the tail end of what has been called the golden age of serial killers, as gross as that is. But people were scared that their community was going to fall victim to the next guy. And that's what people were thinking, because what other monster could have done this? And if you're going to commit a crime so heinous, you're not just going to stop doing it. Not at all. So people were scared. And because of that, there was a lot of pressure on law enforcement. Yeah. I do feel, though, that this person that did this, this is who they are. So in my opinion... If they did it once, they'll do it again, which is good, though, for law enforcement because then it shows that there's a predictability to it. Right. Could this – if you know, if there's a crime in similar nature, there's a possibility that, that he might be involved. And when there's a pattern, they know what to look for. And 
I know that it's sad, but when more crimes are committed, that's just another opportunity to get caught. I agree. So because the detectives did not really have a description to go off of, they had to look at the evidence they did have. And what they had was a bare footprint. Like I said before, a footprint is unique in the same way that a fingerprint is. But the problem with footprints is that there's no national database of footprints. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just you're I, smiling while saying that. I have to because yeah. it's like that. So it's really not – it would only be useful to them if they had someone to compare it to. Right. Like if people, they had someone in custody or something where they could Right. Look. Well, even when you – and when you get arrested, they just fingerprint you. They don't footprint you. Maybe they should start doing that. Maybe they should. But then, like, people that are into that would, like, become law enforcement officers. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Although although this case was unique and it screamed an unknown perpetrator, they had to rule out those closest to Gary and the survivor just to be safe. Gary had been stabbed 24 times. It could be rage, adrenaline, or it could be that maybe he was the intended victim. So the investigators ran a background check on Gary And it came up squeaky clean, as they believed it would. They found that he had been divorced before, but it had been an amicable one. His finances were completely in order, and there had been nothing suspicious happening in his life or with any of his accounts. What about about any neighbors that he was friends with? Well, they... That is what they're looking into. Like, when they do his background check, they're going to be searching for everybody around him. Okay. The same could be said for his girlfriend, the survivor of the attack. After the same investigation was done into her life, it seemed that although rare, this was a random attack. The fact that nothing could be found completely stalled the case. And about a year into the investigation, the detective called in the help of the FBI and their behavioral science unit to try and get a profile on this man. The FBI requested all of the files and pictures and for those who had been working on the case to give their opinion about who they believed the intended target to be. After reviewing the files again, they really believed that the intended victim had been the woman. They believed that yes, Gary had suffered from overkill, but that he had been killed so the killer could get to her. This was important because it established for the profiler whether or not the crime was sexually motivated. They, along with the detectives, agreed that it had been. The profile that the FBI completed was explained to the detectives to better help them find the man that they were looking for. The profiler believed that based on the fact that the survivor said the man seemed to be sexually inexperienced. This is crazy, John, because you were spot on. Really? Yes. They said because he seemed to be sexually inexperienced, that this meant that he was probably younger Ah. between the ages 20 and 27. And that he, that this was definitely the first time that he had done something like this because he, there was no plan. It was like he was acting and that they felt like it, the reason why the attack was stretched out for three hours was because he didn't have a plan of what he was going to do. Right. He was just kind of going through the motions and seeing what worked. And then he would leave and be like, oh, wait, I want to do this and then go back, which is disgusting, but was his thought process. Based on his comfortability level with his surroundings, they also believe that he was from the area 
and most likely lived with other family members. However, they think that he might have left the area for some time after the attack. They thought that this was an escalation, but also his first time committing a crime, that his record would either be clean or only have small misdemeanors. Even though the killer lived nearby, they didn't think he knew the victims in any way. This was a crime of opportunity. This man was most likely a peeping Tom who saw an opportunity to commit a sexual assault or quite possibly had become fixated on the survivor and that Gary was murdered because he stood in his way. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, now though, I see, I, okay, I would take it a step further now. If we use what they have from the profilers, which I think is very insightful, by the way, you know, I think that maybe going around now and seeing if there are people or uh, kids or you know young adults around that age bracket that they're explaining and seeing if there's anybody in the neighborhood where they have parents that might might maybe uh, i guess for lack of a better i don't know how to explain it have but complained or expressed complained or expressed issues. maybe issues with their kid or um maybe just there maybe the two parents are a little dysfunctional there's something wrong going on maybe neighbors have spotted maybe dysfunctionality among family members in town cuz sometimes that actually does kind of maybe correlate to maybe the, there could be a problem with the kid. I agree, but the amount of resources that it would take to do that was something that the OSBI and the detectives just didn't have. You know what? I want them all to have unlimited budget. I they know. should have unlimited budget when it comes to murder or, or violent crimes. There should be no cap. Well, it's also the individuals and the fact that it's not even just the budget or even approved overtime – but the caseloads. I mean, that's true. There's so many things happening all around. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's wishful thinking. It is. So another year passed, and still, despite having the profile, the detectives were no nearer to catching their perpetrator. They reached out to the FBI again for some advice, and they were told that maybe rousing the killer would bring him to the surface again or cause him to reach or lash out. Okay. The FBI contacted the local media, the Oklahoman, and had them feature the FBI profiler in an article talking about the man. In the article, it's highlighted what the woman went through. It was described as hours of psychosexual terror. But also in the article, in big, bold letters standing out on the page in like font size 5000, it said, story in brief. According to Special Agent Connolly of the FBI, the suspect in the Gary Larson case may be homosexual who lives at home with his parents and doesn't have many close friends. Okay. <laughs> they are going in. Okay. First of all, they are poking at a bear. I mean, because it, it is a mm-hmm. double-edged sword. You are drawing him out, like little, like putting little cheese out and they drawing him out. They did this with BTK as yes, well. Yes, they did. And – them questioning this person's sexuality is going to make him come out now, mm-hmm. right? But well, that's, that's the intention, right? But that's so dangerous though because it could make another murder or sexual assault happen. So it's it's tough. Yes, it is dangerous and it is tough. This is the problem with serial killer investigations, as we've seen through Criminal Minds, is that it's not good when there's another victim, but it also gives more clues and brings them closer towards the person. Right. So it's it's a double-edged sword. Well, uh, it continued to say he's probably in his early 20s and may have joined the military. 
they were basically trash talking through the Oklahoman, hoping that the killer would be so enraged by his belittlement, like you have no friends, you live at home with your parents, and the accusation that he was gay, that he would respond. However, it didn't work. Their attempt to get him to respond failed. See, so it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Over the next two decades, nothing new happens in the case. Wow, okay. It goes unsolved. Damn. The only advancement that they had was in DNA sciences. As DNA advances and what we know about it happened, the rape kit was reexamined. And in the swabs, they did find the presence of semen. Oh, wow. That's really good. So they had a DNA profile of the attacker. But when they checked it against the database, which was new at the time, they didn't have any hits come up. So the FBI might have been right in the fact that they said that this person had not committed other crimes, or at least they hadn't been caught or logged. Just like the bare footprint, they would need someone to compare the DNA to. And for 18 years, this crime went unsolved. And I can only imagine what that felt like for our survivor. All of those years feeling like he could come back or that she could be passing him on the street must have been terrifying. But it was a 911 call that came in to the Edmond police in April of 2004 that would finally put an end to hers and Gary's family's torment. This is crazy town. Are you ready for this? The way you're looking at me, it, I, I feel like I'm going to have a crazy reaction to this. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. After hearing yelling coming from outside of their homes, the residents of Pepperdine Ave came outside. They found their neighbor fighting with a man who was dressed in black. Okay. The neighbor was yelling for all of them to call the police. As they watched the scene, it became apparent that he was trying to hold the man in place. It was odd. It looked as if he was wearing a backwards hoodie. The residents placed calls into 911 and minutes later officers arrived and broke the men apart. The man that was the resident of the street said that he had been making a citizen's arrest of the man that was dressed in all black. He said that his kids had seen someone looking through the windows of their home a oh, few times. Oh, my God. Okay. So he put up a security system. Smart. Yes. So the security system had gone off. And he's like, oh, I'm going to catch him. And he runs outside. And when he runs outside, he sees a man in all black running away. So he tackles him and is fighting with him in the street. And then as people are coming outside, he's saying, call 911, call 911. Right. He caught him. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. Well, good for him. Yes. Good for him. So um, while he was being arrested, the officers realized it looked like he was wearing a shirt that had like a turtleneck, but it was a very loose neck, like almost like a cowled neck. And when they pulled it up, it went over his head and he had cut two eye holes out of it. What? He was obviously dressed to conceal himself as a peeping Tom. Dude, what is wrong with you? Come on. The man was 38-year-old Jonathan Graham, and he lived only blocks away. Okay. Detectives went to the registered address of Jonathan Graham. And when they did, his father answered the door. Oh, someone who lives at home with their parents. Interesting. Wow. Seems like the profile was uh, dead on, you know, mm -hmm. dead on the spot there. Well, 18 years ago, that would make Jonathan Graham 
20. Ooh, okay. So um, his father, when they said, your son's been arrested, can we search your home? The father said, yeah, says yes. Okay, so he's not even... He's like, do he's it. He's like, go ahead, dude. <laughs> Detectives went right to Graham's room and began looking through his computer, which they also had permission to do. On the computer, they found pictures that had been taken with a digital camera. It seemed as if the pictures had been taken through a window screen into someone's bathroom. There were pictures of the bathroom itself and of a woman using the bathroom. It's she, it's obvious that she doesn't know if someone's taking pictures of her. Oh, my God. Yeah. There were also voyeuristic pictures of people naked. The detectives took the computer as evidence. They needed to look through it more and in a more official capacity. Jonathan Graham was officially arrested on a misdemeanor peeping Tom charge. If detectives wanted something to stick, they were going to have to get him on something bigger. Can I just say something real quick before you continue? Yeah. At this point, we don't necessarily know if they're connected. I mean... Well, nobody is even thinking they're connected at this point. So uh, what I'm going to say is... Like the officer that responds is... Wasn't even on the force when the other crime happened. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Because I'm I'm just thinking at this point if this is the person that did this all those years ago, could he be doing this peeping tom thing, taking pictures as a almost like a memento and a way to satiate the desire to do more, like to go further? You know what I'm saying? Because it's been a long time since he's done anything. Yeah. So is this a way maybe that he's trying to control the urges of doing what he did the first time by taking now pictures? Because now we live in a digital age where you could take pictures. Right. And like maybe this was a way to do that for him. Right. Like, to like relive it. That is a possibility. Well, the following day, well, I mean, I think that the digital age does change that whole peeping Tom thing because if you, if it was 1986 and you wanted to take a picture of someone through their window, you would have to go get that process somewhere. Correct. Where it would raise a red flag. Now, because we have digital cameras in 2004, you wouldn't have to do that. So it allows people to take pictures of weird things. It also allows people that are this sick and twisted to lurk a little deeper and not have to come out of their hole. Yeah. Sometimes technology is bad. Yeah. I mean, this is a perfect example of it, you know? Well, the following day, and this is when the connection's made. Okay. Detective Scott is assigned to the case. Detective Scott was the first officer to arrive at the scene at 1228 Harding Ave back in 1986. Wow. So they have these pictures that Graham took. And in order to prove that he had taken them from just outside the house, they would have to recreate where he would have been standing to have the pictures at that angle. At the time, laws have since improved, not 100%, but a little bit. But And and the way Detective Scott explained it is, it's not illegal for someone to look into your window if they're standing like in the sidewalk. If they're a reasonable distance away where the public is allowed to be, they're allowed to look into your window technically. I mean, I I don't think that that's fair. I mean, if someone's just staring. Okay, so you're telling me. Let, let's be honest here. If someone's standing by our sidewalk just staring at us, not looking away at all, just staring through everything, you know, in every window of our home, mm-hmm. I feel like that's very intrusive and probably shouldn't happen. Well, in 2004, 
it's not against the law. Since then, stalking laws have been passed and somebody doing something like you just described would be placed under a stalking law. But those didn't exist back then. So what they had to prove was that he was closer than the sidewalk to have taken that picture. I see. So that's why Detective Scott was there trying to see where he was when these pictures were taken. I'm sorry. I keep saying Detective Scott. I meant Detective Day. His name is Scott Day. I, you know, I, but yeah. you know what? I can call him Detective <laughs> Scott. Like we're his friends. Um, so he's trying to recreate that scene. So as Detective Day is standing there, he's having flashbacks to 86. The house is the same. A large ranch, quiet suburb, a large bush near a very low window that goes almost from floor to ceiling. It's basically Gary Larson's house. So when he thought about it, he was like, wait, where am I? And he realized he was the street over from where Gary Larson's house was. The size of that light bulb must have been so big in his yeah, head he when like, it went off. Holy shit. Yeah. Yes. And then that's when everything connected for him. He realizes he's on the next street over from Gary Larson's. Like it's basically the street just above Harding Ave. It goes Harding Ave and then Pepperdine Ave is above it. So he's thinking everything that the FBI said. He's remembering. This guy lives close. Well, he's close to both Pepperdine Ave and Harding Ave. Graham was 38 years old. So that means that in 1986, he was just 20 years old, just like the FBI said. And guess what? What? In 2004, when Jonathan Graham was arrested, he was barefoot. No way. Oh, my God. That is crazy. That, see, that there's way too many things for that to be, like, the connection is strong. There's too many things. There's too many coincidences here. Uh, yeah. So they look into Graham's record. And just like the FBI said, Graham had left the area after 1986 attack and went to Texas, where he had been arrested for a peeping Tom incident. Which also fits the profile that he could have a, missed, a few misdemeanors. Well, no. It fits oh. the profile where they said... He has nothing on his record or a few misdemeanors back when he was 20. When he was 20, he had a clean record, just like the FBI said. Oh, okay. Sorry. Now, but what is weird about this is that our last peeping Tom case, can you tell that this is something that terrifies me because I cover these cases all the time, (laughs) Um, with Corey Parker, he too, as soon as he committed that murder, he left the area. So the FBI is right that these there is a pattern that happens with these men. They're peeping toms. They escalate to murder. Then they leave the area. This is now the second perpetrator we've seen this with. Right. Sometimes they join the military or they go to another state or they go somewhere. Yep. Yep. You know, and that's and that's why nothing else is happening where the first one took place, because normally there's more. Right. If you do it once, you're most likely going to do it again. It seems that. And then that happened, too, with. The case we did with the the hairdresser where he joined the military after. Exactly. So this happens like with when young people commit these crimes, they they book it. Well, it's drop everything and get out of Dodge. Because they yeah. still can because there's nothing kind of tying them 
because they live with their parents most likely. Exactly. They've not, they really haven't built any roots where they were. Right. Not really. So a woman had called 911. This is what happened in Texas. A woman called 911 to report a prowler. And Jonathan Graham had been stopped a few blocks away. He was wearing black again. And on him, he had a camera and a bag with several pairs of handcuffs, knives, sex toys, lubricants, condoms, and lighter fluid. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You fucking kidding? Who puts that in a... That's your bag? That is insane. Imagine being the police officer, like, seeing that. Like, this is a rape murder kit. Yeah, like... If I if I was like looking through the bag and I had him in custody, I'd be like, "What I just, what I just did, you know, by taking him into custody and stopping what could have saved been someone's life, save someone's life." Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry for that cursing. Sorry, mom. Um. So that was it. Like this had to be him. This has to be the guy from '86. There's the coincidences can't be that strong. So Detective Day requested that Graham's footprints be taken and tested against the ones at the crime scene from 86. Now, the reason why he requests the footprint is that this can be done without a warrant because he was under arrest and it would give them an idea if they were on the right track. Like they would need a warrant if it was for the DNA, but the footprint they could do right away. And also if they get the footprint and the footprint matches – then they could say, okay, listen, I, I think we're pretty good here. Let's now get the warrant for the DNA. Well, now, yes, and we then can they'd have probable cause. Exactly. Yeah. So he's like, get that footprint right away. <laughs> but he was informed that Graham had been released on bail. What? He was only facing a misdemeanor for the peeping Tom charge. You would think that that would happen quickly, though. That they can get that footprint before he went out on bail, no, right? Well, they fingerprinted him. They did all that normal processing stuff. But then he got bailed out by his parents. My God. So Day shared his concerns and beliefs with the detectives and his superiors. They all agreed that they needed to investigate this as if it was a murder case. They needed to find out everything there was to find out about Jonathan Graham. But it turned out that their tech department had already done the work. Because what they had found on Graham's computer was enough to put him away for a very long time. I totally forgot about that. They had his computer. Yep. Whether he had a murder or rape conviction or not, his computer would seal his fate. When they got into his computer, they found over 250 files of child sexual assault. Oh, my God. I don't like using the words child pornography because I've... You know, listen to some podcasts with some professionals, FBI, criminal analysts, and they say that the word pornography implies consent. And that's something that a minor is incapable of doing. All of these images are child sexual assault. So, like, that's, they say, the proper words to use, which I agree with. Yeah, so do I. So there were also images that he had taken himself of people. Because the internet, as amazing as it is and everything that it's given us, it's also allowed these sickos a way to get together. It's essentially a web. So he has yeah. shared images with people. People have shared images with him. So some of the images that he downloaded were like simulated voyeuristic images where like the people involved in the images, it's like consensual. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
but then some are not simulated. They are completely voyeuristic where the the subject matter of the photograph is over legal age, but is unaware that the photo is being taken. So that's illegal. Right. I see what you're saying. And he had taken some of those and he had downloaded that others had taken. He received several felony charges related to the images of minors on his computer and he was held without bond. They took his footprint and DNA sample. It was a match for the man who had murdered Gary Larson and sexually assaulted our survivor. Isn't that crazy that the rookie officer who had been the first at the scene was the detective that put it all together 18 years later? It is crazy. And it must have been, you know, it's like a bittersweet kind of thing because in one breath, it's like, you know, it took so long. But at the yeah. same time, you did figure it out and, and you got this guy locked up, which is so good because think about our, our survivor, right? Always having to think that you have to look over your shoulder. Right. What kind of life is that? It's not fair. And she had to go through everything she went through. Yeah. And then that was just something on top of it. It's just it's so crazy. And now Gary's family has answers, too. And that's another. Well, that's a good thing, too, that now they know exactly what went down. In May of 2004, Jonathan Graham was officially arrested for the murder of Gary Larson and the rape of his girlfriend. The district attorney wanted to pursue the death penalty, but the survivor did not want to go through with the trial and bring up all of her emotions again, ones that she had worked very hard to overcome. Gary's family felt the same. They just wanted all of this to come to an end and for justice to be served. And if this was to be a death penalty case, that would mean that the case would last years and that the appeal process would also be dragged out for several years. The families basically gave permission to the district attorney to strike a plea deal. In January of 2005, Graham pled guilty to murder and rape to avoid the death penalty. He later is going to face charges for the child pornography and get additional time. He was sentenced to life without parole. But there were two stipulations in the plea deal. In order for the death penalty to be off the table, Graham would have to admit what he did and why he did it. It would help the families heal, and it would help investigators to better understand the mind of someone with his criminality. However, the second stipulation was that if Graham was ever found guilty of more murders— that the death penalty for those murders and the murder of Gary Larson would be back on the table. Okay, wow. And he agreed to both stipulations. So that means we got to hear what happened from Graham's perspective. In a taped interview, Graham recalled what happened in the early morning hours of August 16, 1986. He said that he had gone out to peep, as he called it, that night, but it was different because he left his street. He normally didn't do that. He said that he was wandering around seeing what windows he could look into. And the light was still on at Gary's house. Because remember, they returned home late. So he looked in the window. And when he did, he saw a woman coming out of the bathroom and getting into bed. And that she didn't have any clothes on. He assumed that she was going to bed. So he was going to come back later. 
He had not seen that Gary was there. He thought she was alone. He said he left for a bit, but then came back when all the lights were out. He took off his clothes and went in through the window. He had cut the screen to get in. He said that he wandered around the house for a bit, but that he must have been making more noise than he thought he was because all of a sudden he had been confronted by Gary in the dark. Gary yelled out, and then he said he didn't remember much. He had the element of surprise, because Gary was a bigger guy than he was, and he struck before Gary could react. He pushed him against the wall and just started stabbing. He said he didn't remember much of it and that he didn't enjoy it. He was just shocked and he couldn't stop himself. He said he could not remember how many times he stabbed Gary. Later, the detectives reflected that they didn't think he was being entirely truthful when recounting the murder of Gary Larson and that they thought that he did enjoy it, but that he was trying to preserve himself a little bit here. He said that he didn't know what to do then. He got up and then he heard a woman screaming. She had seen him. He saw her in the hallway, so he ran after her and chased her into the bedroom. He said he'd been trying to knock her unconscious, which was what she said to detectives too, but that he had been unable to. So he thought that he would tie her up, but he was very inexperienced and he really didn't know what to do. He said that he remembered her telling him that she didn't want him to hurt her. And like he knew that she meant more like he knew that she was referring like, don't kill me. That's basically what she was trying to say to him over and over again. And he told the detectives that he didn't want to kill her. So he didn't, but that he liked the control and the fact that he could do whatever he wanted to her. It was a disgusting thing to hear, but it was good for law enforcement to hear so they could work to prevent these future crimes and know that, Men that do commit these things that maybe at first might not seem like big deals, like peeping toms or stalkers, they escalate to this. This is their future. Eventually looking will not be enough and this is what they will do. The reason the second stipulation was on the table with the plea deal is because they don't believe that Jonathan Graham could have escalated like that at 20 years old and then never done something similar again. And that he may have other victims out there that we just maybe don't know about. But at least he was off the streets. Right. I mean, that is true. That's why um, for the families to agree to just do the plea deal, you know, was a smart thing to do because they knew they had the right guy and he can't hurt anybody else. And that's really... You know, at that stage in the game, that's the best thing you could do. Get him off the street so he can never harm another person again. Right. I agree. I'm glad that he was finally caught and that the survivor can hopefully sleep a lot easier now. 100%. That was crazy. That was intense and insane. I know. This is this one scared me really bad. Yeah. It was, for some reason, this case so visually, like, came to me as I was writing it. I was like, oh, my God, like, you can see it happen, and it's scary. It is. I think there's nothing scarier than, than an, an, an intruder. being able to picture it. I know the tr- intruders, 
Obviously, guys, you know that this is what scares me the most because it's the ones I cover the most. Yeah, intruders are 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 scary. Yes, they're unpredictable. And the, we live in a ranch house. This is why we never sleep with the windows open. Well, thank God I like like sleeping on ice cubes, and I lower the air conditioner as low as it can go, almost. Yeah, because um, no windows open for us. No, never. Oh my God, <laughs> this is so scary. Never. I don't even want to catch a breeze. <laughs> Okay, before we, before we go, I just want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. Wayward Arrow Company, Annie Garcia upped her pledge, Paula, Emma Farley, Corey Diarmento, Jessica Hayes, Seda Mannion, Brianna, Lauren Mary, M. Comella, Mariana, Renee Smith, Vicki Luttrell, J.K., Leah Punturi, Lisa Zai upped her pledge, Tammy, Kathy Brown upped her pledge, so did Dayla Williams, and so did Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining Patreon or joining at a higher level. We appreciate you, and we hope you guys are enjoying the episodes. Until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.